Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. I'm Sarah Koshansky from 11FS, and in today's show, we're looking into all things art and curio-related insurance. As ever, I'm not alone. I'm joined by some specialists in this area. First up, we have James Garthwaite, who works for Art and Private Clients at Hiscox UK in Ireland. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you for having me. And alongside him, we have Luke Mullett, who's an account executive uh, for commercial and private fine art at CBC UK. Welcome to the show. Thanks very, very much. Thank you. And apparently my two guests know each other already. So um, this, should be, this should be an interesting show. Indeed. Uh, let's get on with it. So um, this, this area, it sounds, it sounds like a pretty niche area, but how big is this market, you know, either in the UK or in Europe or globally? Is, is, this, a, is this a big area of insurance? Um, I would say so. Um, whilst it's niche, definitely, definitely a large area. Um, I mean, James would probably be able to give you some more idea of, so, of exactly in terms so it's of not, it's monetary. Not, but, so uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's not a perfect way of doing it, but uh, the FA risk code looks like it's about 160 million sterling. And what would that be, the FA risk Sorry, code? Sorry, the um, Fine Art Lloyds <laughs> risk code. So every, uh, every bit of uh, all the premium coded through Lloyds with the risk code allocated to fine art would be about 160 million sterling so it's it's niche as far as other lines go but it's still a pretty big market in its own right um it's difficult to say outside of that because then you get into different markets and uh, a lot of fine art is uh, rolled into larger property risk placements as well so it's kind of difficult to say and there's definitely more opportunity out there i mean that that for example would take away you know um art that's maybe insured under high net worth policies um by other markets as well um, whereas I think, you know, what James is talking about, as he says, is purely from a fine art perspective. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a good point, actually. What does fine art cover? You know, what, what is that? Is that literally just, um, your old masters on your wall or is that statues? Is this objects? You know, what, what, what is this? What, what would you guys be looking at when you're underwriting? What types of policies? So, our, uh, the definition that we work off is really, really broad and it's broadly anything that's collectible and has a value. So that really oh, wow. gives you scope for almost absolutely anything. So does that include uh, cars? Yeah, so we write we say, uh, classic cars, we do uh, musical instruments, um, and there's all sorts of niche, niche collectors within various um, categories of fine art as well, which we accommodate too. So as long as it meets that criteria, we can really look after it, unless Luke might have an idea of something that I've declined on that basis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once or twice. But no, I mean, everything from stamp collections, they're still out there to, you know, uh, memorabilia and ephemera. So old letters, correspondence, you know, uh, books is quite a large market as well. What's so the James- weirdest things you guys have ever looked at or ever crossed your tables? Ooh. Um, I've had some, some unusual things. I had, for example, I, I had one client who uh, called me one day and said, oh, I'd like to insure my Ferrari, um, which you'd think, you know, is a pretty bog standard thing to insure as a, as a motor policy. But no, it transpired that he owned a Formula One, uh, Michael Schumacher's Formula <laughs> One winning Ferrari and wanted to install it in his house. So, um, yeah, it didn't need any motor risks. Um, <laughs> and it's not really, I don't think you could really call that fine art as such. Um, so that was an interesting one. Um, and I'm sure James sees all sorts of strange uh, and wonderful I things. Think, yeah, I, I, I personally get really excited by the, the classic cars and uh, because I just think that it's something that really appeals to me. Um, we see a real spectrum of uh, of things that we're asked to cover. And when we get some photographs, it's quite interesting 
So some, for example, sculptures that aren't to everyone's taste, particularly on the contemporary side, completely different. But last week I was asked to cover uh, a, uh, a Danish mummy that had been preserved from the Iron Age. Um, so what they, <laughs> what, the, what they, they, they refer to, I'm not, I have no idea how to tackle the Danish translation, but, um, a Danish bog body. So apparently quite a lot of these have been found over the years. And this is one of the, better preserved examples so we were asked to quote on that and um with some of the weirdest stuff there's there's a real underwriting consideration when and that's when the, the sort of niche experience comes into play so we were we've been asked to cover artworks which are partly comprised of organic matter as well so sort of animal and meat products and that 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 gets a bit odd as well so there really is a huge spectrum that we end up seeing this is brilliant i'm loving this by the way um so i mean when you when you're talking about that how so if some of those things are, are completely obvious that they're valuable. So if you have a classic car, that will be quite clearly a, a valuable item. Yeah. But how do you decide that something you how own needs a sort of specialist insurance policy? So you talked about high net worth insurance policies, and obviously they will have you know c- collection insurance, if you like. But how do you come to the consideration that actually this particular piece – I mean, if I have a Danish bog body in your home, I suppose that is a question where you're going to be like, how do we keep this insured? Yeah. But what, what, is the, you know, what does it generally fall to? Is it um, the value of the item? Is it its individuality? Is it just how hard it would be to replace? Is it a combination of those factors? I think it's a combination of those. Um, I, I, I mean, personally speaking, and, and looking at the stuff that we see, I mean, we have all sorts of clients that, that and their collections range from, like you say, all ma- old masters paintings, but that it could be antiquities. Um, I, I've got one particular client who's obsessed with Egyptology. So, you know, he's got antiquities coming out of his ears. Um, I, I think it's most people will have a standard household policy. And those policies really, you know, don't make too many provisions for what we would consider a fine art or a collectible. When you get into the certain values that, that people that collect fine art and collect these sort of curios, you know, you're getting into serious values. It suits to have a product designed with, you know, for, for what you're insuring. Um, there are areas of cover which are, which, which pertain to fine art, such as defective title depreciation in value, um, all those sorts of things, which which a specialist policy is is designed to meet the needs. So really it's that that's that's the real criteria for me is is you know what really what do you need the cover for? You what's likely to happen to it and and can we respond and and you know is there a policy out there that somebody's written to, to respond in kind. So, so that, that's a good question, actually. So talking about what do you insure these things against? So I imagine if you've got a, an old painting, it's fairly easy to to know what you might need to insure it against. But what about some of the more specialist items out there? And- I mean, the key thing really is is it's, it's it tends to be in all risks what what they call in the industry an all risks policy. So it's all risks of physical loss or damage. Mm-hmm. Um, now there are so that could be. Anything from accidental damage, somebody drops it or something's dropped onto it. I mean, if we use the example of a painting, you know, you can put your foot through it. We've, there are examples, unfortunately, where cleaners within quite affluent homes have not realised perhaps what they're cleaning. That's and, fairly you common. Know, that's, yeah. that's more common probably than, than you realise. Um, things like that, really. So, yeah. So, I, just to add to that, um, the fine art policies really, I think it's gotten to the point where we really cover everything that we can cover because the market is really quite mature now. So in the sixties, it was in its infancy and it was born out of, um, underwriters looking. So Robert Hiscox within Hiscox became a market leader in, in, uh, fine art and established Hiscox's position 
that it enjoys today by rolling property and cargo policies into a single fine art placement. At that point, it was really identified that the cargo and property market couldn't really cater properly for fine art, not factoring things in like depreciation and other common things that a client really needs um, when making a claim on a policy. But now that the market is pretty mature, you can really, you're covered against everything that you reasonably can be expected to cover, get covered against. So on our broadest wordings, the only exclusions you've really, the only material exclusions you've really got there are wear and tear, which is not something you can really insure against, and inherent vice. So if you insure an, in, insure an ice sculpture and it melts, then it's if there's an issue within the item itself. Mm-hmm. So if you were to put an item which is made of metal by the sea outside, it ends up rusting. Mm-hmm. That's a sort of issue with the item itself. Those are really the main exclusions that you're looking at there. So it's pretty broad. So, um, I mean, let's let's bring this around a little bit to sort of technology. Yeah. So my understanding is, and again, this is, I'm sure you have a lot more insight to this than me, but, um, you know, now people who own these items are using a lot of technology to maintain them. So we're talking about, I don't know, temperature or light, all that kind of sensors yeah. and devices. Um, is that something that's, that's affected how you're writing your policies? Are you having to either incorporate them or is it making it easier to, to insure these items? So things like we talk about sort of things like uh, physical protections that improve the risk of things like um, sprinklers, climate control, yeah. or, or, or even sensors. So I'm thinking of some of the the sensors that would detect that something so damp and then yeah. triggers something, and then actually the policy has changed because the risk has changed. If that makes sense, because yeah. you've got a device in place that would detect the damp, so therefore it's less likely that the painting yeah. is going to be damaged by that or whatever it is. Yeah, of course. So on the underwriting side. On the uh, on the big museums, the big national museums, which have all the climate control in place, that really improves the risk for underwriters. On some of that business as well, it makes our job a little bit easier because it's almost to an extent self-selecting because all these institutions look after their art so well in terms of climate control, then the due diligence they do on their own artwork almost does part of our job for us. So that, for example, the Tate won't loan any of their works out to an institution which isn't going to be up meeting their standards. So it does improve the risk. But then equally, one of the challenges is that while that technology has really come on a long way, a lot of our private clients haven't haven't enjoyed that or haven't been able to benefit from that or chosen to benefit from that. So we ensure... and. Luke will have probably similar experience, but lots of uh, stately homes and things like that, whereas actually the infrastructure is pretty out of date and hasn't been maintained quite to the same extent. So we really have to ask for quite a lot of information at the underwriting stage, and we can't take any of the climate control for granted, even on... Uh, collections which might be huge sums insured. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, there will be examples where it probably, you know, it would be warranted, or not warranted in as an insurance term, mm-hmm. um, which of course means that you know um, your policy could could not pay in the event of if you don't comply with the condition. But but more so, yeah, I'd, I'd argue that a lot of the values, if it was in an institution like James referring to, it, it would warrant having those in place. But if you're talking about, you know, like you say, somebody with a grade one or or a grade one listed home. The, the hoops that they've got to jump through, for example, to make any changes to the home, to give you an example. I mean, it's 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 a lot of it's a lot of work for them. So actually, um, te- technology which could help is actually it's actually in this particular instance is being it's it's harder to access for indeed. these people. Um, and and in some instances could be prohibitively expensive. I would say in terms of technology, I think there's a lot of things that do help, um, such, such as the alarm systems that you can get now. Back in, you know, years ago, really the, the standard was sort of red care and central station alarms, but 
you can get apps on your phone now where you can access your alarm, you know, CCTV at home, never used to really be a thing in houses. I'm, I'm sure we've all got examples of just friends of ours and, and just people you know that have got their own CCTV cameras and are sitting there stalking their house all day while they're supposed to be working. Their pets. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've definitely seen that. Um, does that does, to, and does that impact the policies that they have? So if, when you're writing the risk, presumably a lot of these are quite specialist policies to the point of, you know, the particular sort of item. And would there be kind of, a, okay, so I'm just thinking of like my basic home insurance. They ask me if I have a lock, if I have a back door, if I have a front door, like whether I have an alarm or not. Do, you know, down the, do, do you have extra grades, I suppose, is the question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so this is probably a good a good idea to take you through the process of how maybe James and I would would, would work together to to secure a client. So so as, as a broker, I'm, the cli- I'm facing the client's. Um, I have a list of list of questions really that I need to ask and a, and a list of information that I need to identify at an early stage to to be able to to present it to James and then he will accept you know the risk way up way up what he's looking at apply some rates and give me some pricing so the key things are physical securities um, locks on doors locks on windows accessible skylights etc etc um, alarm systems intruder and fire so you know um, let's face it if if you've got thirty million pounds worth of art in in your in your property, you know is a battery operated smoke detector going to be sufficient? Maybe, maybe not. Do you have a disaster recovery you know plan in force where you have a way of if the fire is discovered in your property, let's get the most valuable pieces out? Um, a good example of that working was it was at uh, was at Windsor Castle, believe it or not. Um, they had a discovery, you know, disaster recovery or, or a bit of one in place, and they managed to get quite a few of the valuable artworks out. That before. was that huge fire that back was in the nineties. Huge 90s, one, yeah. and I remember actually, I drove past, uh, drove past it on the way to Wales when it was actually going off, and it's it's one of the most intimidating things I've ever seen. But but yeah, so so there are all those things to consider, um, and they all have factors. So so I would speak with the client, uh, gain that information, um, put it in a package to James, present it, and and then hopefully you know get the pricing and the terms of the policy right and, and then visit the client. Um, alarm system gradings make a huge difference, you know. But, yeah, yeah, but uh, to your point about uh, there being, you know, gradings or um, discounts according to what security is in place, we, we don't really work on that basis as such because um, the difference between fine art being a niche area, as you identified earlier, is that it's not a homogenous class of business. It's not like uh, motor policies where you know however how many 17-year-olds drive Vauxhall courses and the number of claims in the last year and how many big claims. And it's uh, So it has to be tackled in a slightly different way. And it might sound old-fashioned, but when we look at the risks, as well as all the physical security, we look for clients that are uh, generally rich, honest, and careful. And that's really our pricing philosophy. And if we can get comfortable with those three things, normally everything else falls in place. The rich is usually pretty easy to establish just by virtue of how much they're looking to <laughs> ensure. Exactly. Yeah, in their exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you're, if you, if someone's got a $150 million collection, you're not really trying to work out whether they're wealthy or not. Um, the, uh, the honesty and the careful bit can be a bit, a little bit more tricky, particularly the honesty side. Um, but hopefully if all things fall in place, we, we've got a good risk and we can write it. So, and do you both, um, do you work across, cause I, I know that you work across commercial and private. Um, although James, I understand that you work with private clients. Is, if you're talking about the difference between me having an art collection and the Tate having an art collection, um, is there, obviously there's a difference in the way you write policies, yeah. but is there a difference in the type of insurance we're talking there? But I'm just thinking about having a, a big public, yeah. public collection yeah, versus a private collection. Yeah, there would be. Um, I mean, 
there are policies that cater for both. So, I, I, funnily enough, James and I, I, you know, we deal with with both classes of business. So I, I work with James on both private collectors um, as individuals, but also uh, for galleries, museums, and, and institutions. You know, yeah. so so yeah, we we do look after both. And I imagine some cross the the cross but into both as I think about private homes uh, sorry stately homes which sometimes have yeah. people living in but also on Saturdays have people yeah, drifting have, around yeah, the exactly. and when we, when we write some of those as well and that gets a little bit tricky because then you suddenly are into uh, almost like a commercial policy or an events type policy if they host weddings there I think the this Luke might might chip in and disagree but I think the probably the three broad categories you're looking at within fine art is pure private collectors which is pretty straightforward um the the big uh, museums and galleries um but uh, non-commercial so uh, as you say things like the tate and other galleries um and then the commercial clients which are dealers which is probably at the trickier end of the underwriting because the claims frequency is higher um, and they're turning over the stock more frequently and there are you know there's more risks i would say involved in in, in a commercial dealer's policy than a, than say a private art yeah. policy for example your private art, unless you're loaning it to an institution or taking it, you know, to be valued or to be restored, the chances of it leaving your house or, or it being on the road regularly are, are slim to none. Yeah. Um, fine art dealers and, and other, you know, um, sort of commercial, commercial driven art policies, they're attending art fairs. Um, you know, they, they, they will be taking art with them to, to, to show to their clients and examples, you know, and, and stuff like that. So it's, it's on the move. Yeah. Um, you've also got, for example, the footfall through their galleries and through their premises by the general public. And of course, we've all seen the video on YouTube of, uh, of those children sitting on the, uh, sitting on the, those artworks at the Tate and, and that one lad who jumped the velvet rope and, you know, put his foot through and, and whatever have you. So, so there, there are added risks involved. Um, and of course, as their businesses, you know, you write a combined policy to protect their, their interests as a business. So employers liability for their employees other sections of the policy to, to, you know, they have to do serious amounts of due diligence when they're buying items and moving them along. Um, but, you know, there are every now and then there are goods that maybe shouldn't be sold that, that, that do appear in the market, you know. Um, what would you mean by that? I'm not a specific example. No, no, no. But, uh, um, one thing, you know, one thing any prudent art dealer's got to watch out for is is a sale of fake or forgeries. Um, yeah. and oh, oh, we've got some lovely salvage in our office and yeah. some really, really pitiful forgeries. Um, <laughs> do you have them on? Do you have your own gallery? We have like them, forgeries? We have them, so we have them on display on our floor as a sort of reminder of one of the uh, professional indemnity claims that we paid out, uh, whether these had been sold as an authentic. I won't say who the artist was. And uh, and we had to pay out for them and we took them as salvage. And it's quite nice to have them up in the little story behind them as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the funny thing for me as well is that um, when you're looking at art and I'm thinking about some of the other things you mentioned, um, and you're saying you can keep them as salvage because inherently they have no value, but a lot of art is like what people are prepared to pay for it, which yeah. is... I just wondered um, if we if we could talk a little bit about depreciation of value or cha- changing of value. I suppose you know even yeah. if it goes so far as jewellery, which has inherent value in the fact that it's got gold and diamonds in it, but yeah. what people might be prepared to pay for it one year, the next year they wouldn't. Is there um, what well, you know? Are, are you guys taking are, are there new models being developed, and are you kind of using new ways of calculating that? A lot of what we, people talk about on this show is new ways of using data yeah, and the way course. it's easier to rewrite models yeah. these days. Is that something you guys are seeing as well? I was just thinking depreciation might be a good 
good place for that to happen I'm sure yeah. there are other places I think you might be disappointed by the answer because I, I, I'd love to say that there's a really clever model that someone's come up with and actually can really accurately uh, predict what's going to happen to a Jeff Koons value over the next 12 months and then you'd it be means, millionaires it if you could do that, that actually it means that the insured is never going to be underinsured on any of their items but the market value of um, fine art is just it's so volatile particularly in some of the contemporary some of the contemporary market as well. And really, the, the, the best solution is for the client to get regular valuations done by a Sotheby's or a Christie's or a Bonham's. Um, and that is really the only way to be, keep on top of it. Because some of the really spiky values that you see at auction can be driven by something as petty as um, two bidders who really dislike each other. And that can really crystallize some thoughts in clients' mind. Things, hang on, I've got a, a, a piece which isn't dissimilar, so I need to look at my value. But actually, under insurance is a risk that a lot of our clients run if they don't stay on top of their valuations. And we always have our poli- or try to have our policies tied down to agreed value because it's really horrible, especially if it's after the event of a claim, to work out what what constitutes market value because that can change one week to the next. And it then becomes a little bit like an arms race where you know the client ends up getting a deal or wants to find some expert to support them and there's all yeah, it can be slightly accurate. So in a way actually it sounds like this is one of the areas of insurance where technology hasn't isn't able to help you quite yet in a lot of places because of the inherent... Not in, not in terms, I would say, as James has touched yeah. upon, not in terms of, of agreeing values and setting and setting the values. You know, um, they're, they're governed by, as James is saying, you know, the, the market out there. And, and, and the petty squabbles between art dealers, indeed. it sounds like. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, and private clients. Um, there are other things that, that, that will have effects on values, like the death of an artist. Um, often at the death of an artist, you can see that immediately values will increase because obviously, you know, there's not going to be any more of their work on the market for a start. Um, that, that's probably one factor in, involved in that. Um, so, so whereabouts maybe where you are seeing some use of technology then? In particular, I, th- there's been a lot of focus on, and I think it's, I think it's all to do with just the, the general way that technology is, is helping people with their lifestyles. But I've seen examples of companies that are designing applications and, and models for inventories. One big thing, um, particularly on the commercial side of things, is like any, like any, I suppose it, you know, it's an art dealer, but essentially it's a shop. So it's a shop for art. So annual stock take, and you know, computerized records are great, but they're, they're, there's the threat that they can be hacked into. You know, get it in a server off-site. So, so there are various companies out there that are developing tools to to keep an inventory of your art. You can, you know, put your put your market values in there and. And, and, you know, there, there are some good ones and, and there are some aimed at commercial clients and there are others that are aimed more at private clients. Um, yeah. and I suppose it's nice for the client as well to be able to, you know, you've got some friends around for a dinner party. Oh, here's my art collection. You know, it's, I suppose yeah. it's, it's better than looking at the, the pictures of them standing at Niagara Falls or whatever for three hours, you know. So. Yeah, I agree. I think that's probably where a real opportunity exists because I think if you could get to a stage where, one leader comes out as having established the best uh, inventory system on the market for both either private clients or, or dealers. I'll stick with private clients because it makes it a little bit easier. If then they were to partner with someone, uh, with an insurer or another market where, um, so that that process could be streamlined, that would be a really good opportunity for the market. So if you were able to update your inventory and then that was to automatically feed through to your broker or your insurer and uh, you could pay your premium accordingly, then that would be a really good automated process. But the challenge, I think, is for something like that to emerge, 
is someone has to deliver something which is a whole lot better than a trusty Excel document and also for not a lot of money because actually the reason we all use Excel day in, day out is it is rather good still. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an interesting um, company that works with uh, what we would call, sort of, I suppose, content insurance. I'm very much on the retail side. I don't know if you know Trove. Uh, no. They're a US company, but they do almost exactly what you said, but f- for, I'm going to say millennials in inverted commas, um, but we don't have homes that we need. To, we don't have our, our sofas up when anything. We don't own our sofas nine times out of 10, but we do have a MacBook, yeah. um, a shiny bicycle, yeah. an SLR camera yeah, yeah. and the clothes. And so you take pictures of each of those things and that's your inventory and you, yeah. you have that insured. And it's yeah. like, these are my gadgets. These are my clothes. These are my, my handbags, my shoes, whatever it is. Um, and it sounds like there's a great application for that, you know, yeah. in, in the more sort of weird and wonderful as well outside of the stuff that most people have in their I completely agree because you know we, we encourage our clients I mean the, the insurance policies state that any item that you own that's above a certain value has to be listed on an inventory anyway um, and of course you know if you've got a client that you've been dealing with for 20 years and they're just scraps of paper in, a, in, a, in an old embossed file or something in the bottom of their drawer and, and as James sort of alluded to earlier, and they're not looking at the market values of their works on, on a regular basis, and then you're going to come into trouble. So I think, yeah, I think there are opportunities out there yeah, for exactly. these lifestyle products. But I think I think part of the problem or, or one of the issues, I wouldn't say a problem, is that let's not forget you're dealing with, you're dealing with people's valuable assets. Yeah. And a lot of these people are particularly private people. You know, I, I think James has alluded to the fact that I think a lot of underwriters, and in my experience, Hiscox particularly, the one of the key aspects of, of them looking at what we give them is is who is the client, who is the client, who is the client. So, if you've got a client that you know that flies under the radar and and isn't out there all the time, then then great, you know. But he's likely to be a, or she is likely to be a very private person. So, are they going to want to give you all of this information? No. Particularly, I imagine if I suppose the opposite also applies if they are. A very famous person. So I'm thinking about like if Jay-Z has a valuable art collection and everybody knows yeah. what he has in his house yeah, yeah. and where he lives, then his yeah. risk is exponential. Because- exactly. And it, it's, you know, all it takes is, we've heard examples of it, but for a system to be, you know, to, to be dialed into or, or, or to be hacked, you know, or iPads to be left somewhere without a bloody blooming password on it or, you know, we've all done it. I think, I think, I think if somebody, you know, if there's a product out there that can guarantee that security and, and, and guarantee, you know, that, that level of discretion, then I think these products could definitely move forward. Um, and I think also as, as the younger generation get more into art collecting and they become more affluent and they're used to dealing with technology for their lifestyles and, you know, on a daily basis, then we will see more of it, I believe. I really do. Yeah, I, I agree. I think one challenge with all of these things is, and, Luke will know it as well as we do, but it's just the distribution of fine art policies is very, very challenging because high net worth individuals can be pretty private, but also there's not no silver bullet um, in terms of targeting them all. It's not an easy way. It's not an easy segment to uh, gain market share in because they all deal with various different family offices and there's all sorts of bizarre networks through which they operate, um, some of which are pretty well established. So they're not that willing to suddenly discuss their personal affairs with someone else. So it is a real challenge, the distribution. You find that, um, and in my experience, you know, if, if you gain a client and you gain his trust as, as his insurance broker, that, you know, it's... You've got the family's you, trust you, as well. And precisely. The kids and, and, yeah. and, you know, but it, there is such an element of trust. I mean, insurance itself is, is based on utmost good faith. That is the key, you know, basis yeah. of all insurance. I have faith in the information you're giving me is correct and you have to have faith in me 
as a broker that I'm going to treat that information with the confidence it needs and do the best job for you. Um, and I think once you can satisfy people that you're working in their best interests, that you're discreet. I mean, you know, let's face it, if I was outside and, or even in this, in this interview and James and I were giving you examples of specific works or specific mm-hmm. people, that, you know, you're gone. That's yeah. it. Yeah. So discretion <laughs> really quickly. is the key in this market. You know, it really is. So it's very different. And I, and I, the next question, just before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you, I'll give you this chance to think about it is, you know, what do you think is next for your industry? But what I would say it doesn't sound like is next is we're going to see um, a rise of price comparison websites for fine art. Just thinking about the sort of one of the most of the uh, areas we tackle on this show, that is their biggest challenge. It's this race to the bottom on price because for, for home insurance or content insurance or phone insurance, that's, that's their biggest challenge. I'm guessing you guys have other challenges, some of which you've mentioned. Um, you know, what would you what would you think is going to happen next? You know, with with the way that we can't stop technology evolving, and you've mentioned the new generations being more comfortable with it. Um, or what would you like to see happen as well? You know, what would you make your life so much easier? So, I mean, in terms of sort of technology, I, I think from a personal point of view, I, I think the inventory, you know, the the inventory technology we've we've talked about will certainly make my life easier. You know, if a client's able to say to me, yeah, I have an inventory of my art and it's all itemized and I keep it online with this company and, and we know that that company is the market leader and is, you know, trusted by underwriters, we have faith in them. Um, in terms of arranging insurance and arranging policies, I, I, I think it's so niche and I think that the factors involved in that, that certainly James would look at in pricing and, and deciding whether to take on a risk and, and, and write a policy, I, I, I think the personal touch, or, you know, it, or, or is always going to be required. I think that if you're relying on technology and you're, you, you know, relying on comparison sites, you're you're not going to be able to to give the information to the people. You know, I I, th- I don't think it's, it, it, I don't think it will go into enough detail. So that makes sense to me. So to the point you said, Sarah, earlier about uh, not being price comparison sites, I think that's true, and I also this contradicts something I said earlier about uh, fine art not being an, a homogenous class, which um, I don't think it is. So I, I think one of our challenges is distribution. So we have worked on one product that we have made where the pricing is done by a model and it's a click and buy product. And that's really to target the smaller customers who might perhaps be more homogenous than the larger ones. So that's called hiscotscollections.com. And that's a very simple click and buy journey. I don't know whether that's going to become a bigger thing and that product's still in its infancy for us. Uh, but that's quite an exciting new area for us. I also think that we've covered off the opportunities that surround um, inventories. I think there are other opportunities probably to be had in terms of distribution through maybe it is going to look like more click and buy or electric submission portal. So a way for us to write business in uh, in different regions across different time zones where we can't have that instant communication all of the time. It might be partnering up with shipping companies uh, and various other opportunities like that. Um, but I, I, I definitely think it is going to be, um, it's, it's going to be important. There's not been anyone who, I've seen come to the market and really dominate that and do something that's really uh, that, that everyone's sort of imitated. So it's kind of watch this space, which feels like a real cop out answer and a bit unsatisfying. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, com- I completely, you know, understand everything you said. I think it's going to be an area where it sounds like tech is going to have an impact. Yeah. It's just, it's going to be slightly slower in some other areas yeah, and, and we've yet to see what that will look like. Exactly. And it's not a class of business that we really want to see become commoditized especially um or or that 
really can be. So it might be a slight tail end Charlie to the party in terms of some of the um, efficiencies that other classes are seeing through the use of technology and insure tech. Well, well, we'll definitely keep our eyes open. Um, that does wrap up our discussion today. Thank you so much to you both for joining me. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Do you have a website you'd like us, you'd like people to know? Do you have a Twitter handle you'd like people to share? Uh, Luke, how about you? Um, yeah, so we can be find on, found online at uh, www.cbcinsurance.co.uk. Uh, the website just gives you an introduction into the range of uh, products that, that, that we can offer and the insurances that we can arrange. Um, so please, you know, if you're ever interested, uh, please look us up and, and we'll see what we can do. Perfect. And how about you, James? Uh, happy to take any any questions anyone might have over LinkedIn or um, we've got, so the website that I just mentioned is uh, com. if anyone's interested in that. Perfect. Um, and as always, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kashansky, or if you are interested in InsureTech, I wrote a blog post that went up on Forbes this week on InsureTech and it's got drones in it. So do go and have a read of that. Um, that wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you so much to both of my guests today. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com.